0: not know they gave certificates for that so you could be certified in hot mess <laughs> those of you that don't know me my name is matt fisk and i serve in the campus ministry here and yeah the guys in the back i'm hijacking the uh the projectors just a second i don't know if you noticed but um see the the guys who did the uh the the welcome jeremiah and leah uh, they're dating and then josh and alana who did the communion they're dating and and which is awesome But uh, I'm dating as well. And that just happened a a month and a day ago. But she's not here, so I thought I'd show you a picture. That's right, we're cute, get over it. (laughs) Just deal. (laughs) Amen. You guys can take the projector back now. I'm just going to do my thing. Right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 4. We've got a lot to talk about today. As a church, we're going through the book of Luke. And we started last year, and we're all the way at chapter 4. So it's our 2020 vision to finish Luke before 2020. Who knows? By faith, right? By faith, where did half the lyrics go? By faith, that song. By faith, I'm making up the words off the right. You ever, have a, you ever have a song that you hear on the radio, or you just hear, hear a song, and it just, the first time you hear it, you just love it to death. You're like, oh my goodness gracious, this is my heart song. This is my jam the second that you hear it. And the only thing that you want when, it, when it's over is to hear it again. And maybe you go that second step. Maybe you, you know, if, if you got a smartphone, you, you get on the iTunes store and you buy it right there and then. Or, or maybe you're more patient. Maybe you, you're, <laughs> yeah, maybe you wait till you get home and get on Spotify. <laughs> maybe you wait till the next time you hear it on the radio. But, you know, over time... The songs that we end up loving, we, we, we learn to love them so much, we're like, man, I, I could listen to this all day, and some of us do. I know some of you do. You just, you hit that song, you put it on repeat over and over and over and over and over again. And we love, we love our songs, right? We love those things, and, and we, we know every little thing, we know every in the song, we know exactly when the beat's going to drop, we know every word, we know the, the rap that goes in the middle of it, that, you know, to the Justin Bieber song that you shouldn't know, You know, every little bit of it. But it's funny, over time, over a long period of time, those songs, the one that just grabbed your heart, grabbed grabbed you by the eardrums, and just was like shaking you and and, and making colors brighter and making everything in life good, all of a sudden starts to to lose that edge. You know what I'm talking about? That is just kind of like, oh yeah, this thing again. And then the song that you literally had on repeat before, that you would just listen to all day, every day, Now you're skipping. I got this. Now unfortunately, I think the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We get so familiar with the song and dance routine of being a Christian. That even the basic things that at one point grabbed our hearts and and tore us open from one side to the other no longer have any power. And The passage that we're going to read this morning, we're going to be talking about a bunch of people that had become that way, not only with the word of God, but Jesus himself. And today, especially if you consider yourself churched or religious or familiar with spiritual things, you best listen up because it's going to get real, real quick. Give you a little bit of background here. We're in Luke four. Jesus enters into Galilee, and and for those of you that are not up on your ancient Palestine, ancient Israel geography, that's the north. Okay, Jerusalem's in the south, in the middle is Samaria, and in the north is Galilee. That's where Jesus was from. He was from the north side, and Galilee was. A different kind of place around, around Israel, because in Israel, they were so proud of being Jewish. They were God's chosen holy people. I mean, if I had the Exodus and all the, the plagues and the Passover stuff, I'd be feeling pretty good too. Like, we, we, God, we are God's chosen people. We're special, you know? And over time, especially in between the Old and New Testaments, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and, and particularly the Romans had started to move in on their turf. Now, Galileans, here's the thing about Galileans, these guys were from up north, these are like northern boys. And they were always said to be full of courage and honor, always ready for a fight. These guys, I imagine them to be like Scottish Highlanders. Like guys that just live up in the mountains ready to, you know, conquer something. And then all of them were ready to take back their homeland. They they believed that um, to be truly right with God, that Israel would have to be restored as a kingdom, that they had to, that, that somehow the, the political spectrum, like, they had to be a good kingdom in order to be right with God. Can you imagine that? Like, Congress would have to be right and doing well for us to be doing well spiritually. Ain't never going to happen. <laughs> But the Gentiles had been taking up their space, especially in, in, and we're going to zoom into Nazareth in just a minute here, Jesus' hometown, and uh, Nazareth was kind of like a suburb of a bigger city called Sepphoris. It was a large city, uh, it, was a, it was a big uh, economic center, a lot of uh, wealthy Roman um, businessmen were there, and that was a, there was a huge trade center. In fact, a lot of people from Nazareth worked in Sepphoris, it was about a three-mile walk, so that was the daily commute there. But 30 years before our text, imagine this, this, this place of Sepphoris and this surrounding area, 2,000 of the youngest, the best, and the brightest of the Jewish young guys rose up in a rebellion to kick the Romans out of their place. They were ready for a fight. And then what happened was, well, the Romans didn't like that so much, so they came in and crushed the rebellion under their foot. And then they took those 2,000 Jewish rebels... They didn't just put him in prison. They didn't just execute him. They crucified them, put them on crosses, and put them on the road between Nazareth and Sepphoris. So it's very possible that Jesus, as he was growing up, walking back and forth, maybe with his father, from Nazareth to Sepphoris, that as he walked along the way, looking in the eyes, being able to, for him, a little little boy, but for everyone else, on eye level, being able to see crucified these Jewish rebels— the best and the brightest, their heroes, crucified all along the way. And when you walked into town, just the hatred for the Gentiles, the hatred for the Romans. You see them like peering, peering around corners and hurrying from shop to shop. Some, some people would look away from Roman soldiers just because just they don't want to have the wrath come upon themselves. Other Jewish people looking intently at a distance like, soon, I will kick you out soon with utter contempt for their invaders burning in their blood. But everybody felt the awkward elephant in the synagogue, as it were. (laughs) And basically, everyone was waiting for someone to kick these Italian interlopers back across the Mediterranean and hoist the flag for the next Jewish kingdom. It's kind of like a western where the bad guys have control of the town, and the townspeople just running around scared, waiting for somebody to come in. And then here comes Jesus, fresh off of his showdown with Satan. You want a Western? And he goes, G- yeah, that was, Thank you. Jesus just took out Satan. He's feeling pretty awesome. He's coming into Galilee with all kinds of swag because when you beat the devil, you're feeling pretty hype. And he went around to the different synagogues and he taught with all kinds of wisdom. Getting more and more of a following, getting more and more Twitter followers, and he's got some street cred now. And it's, interestingly, in verse 14, it says he was led by the Spirit. We're going to you know, start reading in just a minute. In the power of the Spirit, he did all of this led by the Spirit. He's not just like, and then I'll go there, and then I'll go there, and there. No, the Spirit is leading him on a very intentional walk about in Israel going exactly where the Spirit decides to go. And he's going around to different towns, and now the Spirit decides that it's time to go to the most frightening place imaginable, the terror of terrors, the belly of the beast. He decides to send Jesus home. That's the place where the Spirit decides to lead Jesus next. Let's pick up in verse 16. It says, He went to Nazareth, Jesus. to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop right there for just a second. Jesus rolls into town. He's got the following, and they're about to slap his name on a water tower because he's getting famous. (laughs) They come to see him do his thing, and he comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and this would have been a very regimented process. Everybody would have known what was going on, kind of like you guys know when we come into church. We expect three songs. And a welcome, and then two songs, and then communion, then contribution after we've been quiet for a little bit, then two songs, and somebody's going to preach, then the close, and depending on who's going to do it, it's either going to be like the fourth point of the sermon, or it's just going to be announcements, and then we sing one last song, and then we're out of here. Like, you know exactly what's going to happen. They would have known the exact same thing. There was a, there was a schedule to it. Everybody, but this, this particular Sabbath was special because they had a famous guy. They had their own boy, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth had come in to to, to preach. And everyone wants to see, all right, we heard about what you're doing in other places. What are you going to do here? It's exciting. And the synagogue uh, service would have started with prayers. It would have started with the the recitation of the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And uh, the 18 benedictions, which would have just been more prayers. Then there would have been readings, one from the law, so the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And the second part would have been something from the prophets. And then, and this is crazy, actually, when they read the the law and the prophets, everybody in the synagogue stood up out of sheer respect and reverence for the word. I don't say that to make you feel bad for not standing when I read the Bible just a little bit earlier. You shouldn't feel bad because you didn't. Although, you might want to feel bad if I read it in a little bit and you don't stand up. I'm just kidding. No, don't worry about that. But then what happened is, then it would have rolled up the scroll, and remember, you you don't have like a Bible, like a nice little Zonder van with the little ribbon and the engraved name. No, you would have had scrolls. You wouldn't have even had the chapter numbers or the verse numbers. Jesus would have had to literally find it. He's like, you know, scrolling right and left, and he's not, you know, doing the iPad thing. He's doing actual scrolling. And Jesus would have gotten up, he would have read that, and then he would have closed it up and sat down. And here's the thing, the thing that he reads, go back, he's quoting Isaiah 61. Actually, you know what, go ahead and put your ribbon or your finger or bookmark where we're at now. Let's go over to Isaiah 61. You guys with me? And this actually would have been a favorite. Of everybody listening here. And you'll see why in just a second. All right, so Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me, wow, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness from the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God to comfort all those who who mourn. And then it goes down in verse five, strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. They will be called and you'll be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches, you will boast. Okay, this would have been a favorite for everybody there because they did not like Gentiles. And the best part about this is that, look, yeah, the captives will be free. The year of the Lord's favor will come and the day of vengeance will come they're like sitting there this was the scripture that you read to get the brothers fired up at a men's devo they loved it they loved this they were like the day of the vengeance of the lord yeah that's right kick them out vengeance is coming change gonna come you're gonna take them right out it's about to get real these stinking roman oppressors are about to get kicked out because our god is good and we will feast on their wealth and their riches and this is what got them fired up. But if you go back, flip back over to what Jesus actually read, back in Luke 4, what he does is he goes, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He is set to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. To everyone in that room listening to this, they're like, and? And what? You, you, you left out the best part. You left out the day of the Lord's vengeance. We all know what's coming. This is the equivalent of somebody turning your favorite song off right before the beat drops. <laughs> this is how we do... What? What? People that do that, God sees you. finishes up, rolls it right up, and then he goes and sits down and everybody, every eyeball in the entire place is fastened on him. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the tenant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel, with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now we'll stop here. He finishes the reading, he sits down, everyone's focused. And what he says hits like a lightning bolt in this little Jewish town. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because what he says is a complete game changer. What he says is, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me. That word in the Greek, that word anointed is kreo, which is where we get the word Christos, Christ. And he's quoting something in the Old Testament where we get, it's the, the Hebrew word of Massah which is where we get Messiah from. So basically he just said, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. He's not messing around. And this claim can only be met with two responses. And those two responses are my title and my two points. You can either meet that claim as someone who's familiar or someone who's faithful. Are you familiar Or are you faithful? And it wasn't just that they were familiar with Jesus, although that doesn't help. They saw his speaking ability and were amazed at his gracious words is what it says. They spoke well of him. That's actually an ambiguous little phrase right there. They spoke well of him. Actually, in the Greek, it's more like everyone bore witness to him. And they were amazed at his gracious words. And that idea, it's not that he was gracious. It was that he was like a really good speaker. They recognized, oh, he's speaking really well. They were amazed at how powerful. You can't deny the rhetoric. You can't deny the power of his words. But then they go on to say, well, isn't this Joseph's son? Indicating an attitude of of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you say you're the Christ and the Messiah. But I remember when you were running around half naked around the streets. Didn't seem so Messiah then. I remember you. And the the idea, they all spoke well of him, they all bore witness to him. In Greek, it has kind of an ambiguity to it. Kind of like if we were to say to somebody, well, bless your heart. It's kind of ambiguous. It's like, oh, that's great. Bless your heart. It's kind of condescending, you know, too. Like, really, what do you mean by that? Bless your heart. Amen. He says that they will tell him, physician, heal yourself. Basically, they're saying, prove it. All this would have been standard operating procedure. Deuteronomy 13, you can write it down and look back at it later. It's how they were supposed to test prophets. They're supposed to look for prophets for the signs and the message. If they had signs and a good message, then you could listen to them. If they had signs and their message tor- turn you towards false gods, then you had to stone them on the spot. So this is standard operating procedure. And then he makes, then he kind of makes a little play on words. And he says, no prophet is ever accepted in his hometown in Greek. It's actually the same word as the Lord's favor. So, yeah, it's the year of the Lord's favor, but you're not favoring me. The year of the Lord's acceptance, but you won't accept the Lord, me. And this is all interesting, but then he goes and drops this bomb on him. He goes, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah... Was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath. Now, to us, we read Zarephath, and we go, hmm, how come everything in the Bible sounds like it was named after a sneeze? And then we move on. But to them, that would have been an air raid siren screeching in the middle of their synagogue. Did he just say Zarephath? And then he goes on to talk about Naaman. The Syrian? For us, we're like Syria. I think there's something going on over there right now. That's about all we know about Syria. But he specifically says, naming the Syrian. Not naming the leper, naming the Syrian. What he did was he just said, look, God helped these Gentiles and not y'all. They're sitting there going, did he just call the Gentiles the good guys? Did he seriously leave out the part about God's vengeance and then call the Gentiles the good guys? That's when they get furious and try to throw him off a cliff. And now you know you're having problems when you try to throw Jesus off a cliff. (laughs) And here's the problem. They were so familiar with their way of thinking and how the word was supposed to be read and how God was supposed to act. That they not only missed him walking through the front door and speak to them, but they literally tried to throw him out of their life and off a cliff. And I think that's where some of us are this morning. Those of us that consider ourselves religious or churched or pretty familiar with God and the Bible. You know, you remember the first time that you heard the word. And you felt it burn in your heart as though God himself was gazing into your soul. The first time you took a stroll down discipleship lane and you read Luke 14 verse 33, it says, Unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple." And you cringed at the fact that you weren't really following Jesus. Pray for whatever's going on out there. <laughs> well, the first time somebody shoved Ephesians 5 under your nose. And you saw that not even a hint of sexual immorality was tolerated by God. And you felt the burn in your heart. How everyone... <laughs> How the first time you read Matthew, 18, or Matthew 28, 18 through20, 20, how everyone who claimed to know Jesus was supposed to go and make disciples, and not just the pastor. <laughs> you remember that, yeah. but over time our hearts bego- be- begin to come dull. And we find the most striking scriptures become so familiar that we domesticate them. Yeah. We declaw them so that they're safe for us. We embroider them on pillows. We put them on stickers. We tweet them. We put them on our Facebook wall. We think we know them so well that we assume we understand them and we assume we obey them. But what happens is we end up being our own version of the scriptures and not God's word. Really, being familiar with scriptures. Like, you know the time, if somebody was to get up here and read Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen 18 through 20, for those of you that have been around for a while... You know, at one point, that was like, yeah, I really got to go make disciples. Now, it might be, yeah, I know that. Oh, it's in a song. Go and make disciples of all nations." That might be the only, regi- the only response that registers. A lot of us would not feel the need to go out those doors and share our faith with the cashier at whatever restaurant we're going to. Some of us can hear not a hint of sexual morality and go home tonight and look at pornography on the computer. Some of us in here can hear that scripture and go back to your immoral relationships. And it won't register at all because you've heard it before. We can hear. We have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily and follow him. And yet nothing changes. We go right back to where we were. I'd gotten to that point when I came into college. I hadn't shared my faith with anyone, I think, for like a year. Or something like that. And I remember Sam Cameron, my campus minister at James Madison, telling me, Matt, you've got to share your faith because you're, you're not living discipleship. And I, I was like, well, I know those scriptures, but you're being legalistic. And he was like, go, go study it out. And I was like, fine, go study it out. And so I studied it out, and I remember, I remember scripture after scripture, my heart just burning with conviction that, oh my gosh, how have I been talking about Christianity for this past year and not done anything like a disciple should? But I could quote a bunch of stuff. I knew the songs. I knew how to act. I knew the song and dance. I wasn't even close to living it out. And really, it's a euphemism for pride. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we hold the word dearly when really we're clutching our own hearts too hard, too desperately to grab hold of what God's outstretched hand is giving to us. You ever hear the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? But most of us in here don't show contempt for God's word By hating it. We don't say, I hate God's word. No, we show contempt for God's word by making his words and warping them into our own. We know that we should seek first the kingdom. But that doesn't really apply to our kids' soccer games or basketball games. Or our jobs. Or our schoolwork. You know, God knows my heart. He understands. I can miss church. I don't need to be a devo. We know that the word says, do not be friends with the world, but that can't apply to the pictures that I have on Instagram or the people that I follow on Twitter. I mean, my parents won't even let me go see R-rated movies. I mean, I've got to be okay, right? That means I'm not friends with the world. I mean, if I go to that party, I'm not actually going to drink or smoke or hook up with anybody. I can hang out with those friends who do. And the whole time you know, don't be friends with the world. Go and make disciples. Well, I shared my faith with plenty of folks back in the campus days. Or last semester. Or at the beginning of the semester. Or freshman year. Or when I was an intern. I share my faith by shining my light now. What is that? (laughs) Seriously. Jesus was the light of the world. And yet his light did not shine bright enough to just let it shine. <laughs> what in the flat world are you doing? How familiar have you gotten with God's message? And how familiar have you gotten with God's messengers? Can you still hear the message from anywhere? Used to be that anybody comes up to you. You hear it you're like, oh, I need the scriptures. I need the word. I need help. Yeah. Can you hear it from anywhere? Can you hear... The truth from that young Christian who's been faithful for five minutes. Can you hear a correction, a rebuke? Can you get convicted by somebody that you study the Bible with? Can you hear the truth from someone that you're discipling? Can you hear the truth from your wife? Can you hear the truth from your husband? Some of us have gotten so familiar with God's messengers that we miss God himself trying to talk to us. Surely, you know, Jesus said, surely there were plenty of widows that needed help in Israel, but none of them. Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, except this widow in Zarephath, a Gentile. Surely, in this room, there are families that your kids are out of control. Surely there are marriages in this room that are an absolute mess of selfishness and bitterness. Surely there are singles in this room that are diving headfirst into materialism. Surely there are campus students that are overflowing with apathy and impurity. Surely there are teens that have let the world buy up real estate in your heart. All that need God... But we'll receive no help because you're too familiar to be bothered with what God's word actually says. How familiar are you with God's message? Is the word constantly rewriting and reworking your life? Or have you started to file away your convictions only to pull them out when you're asked to have an opinion? We cannot be the Nazarenes that missed the very messenger of God and the message of God because they thought they knew what was already coming. Are you too familiar to be bothered by God? But it's not all bad news. That needs to be convicting to all of us. It's convicting to me. How dare I miss God's word? But it's not all bad. These guys were actually so close to the truth that they could literally touch it and missed it. But Jesus does give us a model to follow, to guarantee that we can see what God is actually trying to say. That's why he talks about the widow and talks about Naaman. I don't have time to go through everything. Write these down. Go read them this week for your own quiet times, your own edification, because you need to be edified. Write down First Kings 17. And that's about the widow and Zarephath. I'll go through that in just a second. And then write down 2 Kings five. You can find the entire stories about that. That's naming the, the, the Syrian. But I'll just kind of go through the Cliff Notes version. The widow and Zarephath. Basically, what happened was this: this, this God closed up the sky, it doesn't rain, and everybody is dying because they have nothing. And this a widow and her child. Literally, the two uh, uh, like most neglected people back in the day. No help, no nothing, and. Elijah is sent to this widow, and he asks her, hey, can I get some water? Can I have a drink? And, and she goes, uh, I, I, okay, I'll get you a drink. And then Elijah goes, oh, yeah, and some bread, too. The straight-up arrogance. Can I have a drink and some bread during a famine and a drought of a widow? The sheer impertinence of that. She should have been like, get out of here. Who do you think you are? She said, I don't have any bread. I only have a handful of flour and a jar and oil and a little jug, and I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That is literally her outlook. I'm going to prepare me and my son's last meal, and you want a drink and some bread from me? And Elisha goes, don't be afraid. Go home and do what you've said, but first make a small cake of bread for me and bring it to me, then make something for yourself and your son. And and then he promises that the jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry uh, until the Lord gives back rain. And you know what? She does it. She goes home and even in the midst of her desperation, she had hit rock bottom. Literally, I'm on my way to die with my son. And yet, you know what? I'm going to listen to what God has to say here. And you know what happens? God takes care of her. The oil... And the flower don't run out, and they're fine. Actually, her son dies, and then Elijah goes and raises him back to life. That's faith in desperation. And the second story, Naaman. This is like faith in embarrassment. Naaman was a powerful general in Syria. But he also had leprosy, which is nasty. And so he comes, uh, he's got a servant that says, go to Israel. And so he goes to Israel. And he says, somebody, help me, heal me. Goes to the king. The king's like, I can't do anything. Elisha hears about it. Says, here, come to me. And then so Naaman rolls up and he's got his entourage. He pulls up with chariots and horses like a big deal because really he's not. I mean, he is a big deal, but he's got leprosy, so he has to kind of compensate. It's not so great. And he rolls up and then Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him, makes this guy come into him and says, go wash yourself in the Jordan River. Which maybe for you might be like a, a romantic idea that like, oh, the Jordan River is so spiritual. The Jordan River is nasty. Like I seriously don't know whether I want to go in the Jordan River or like the bay. Like it's, it, it, if you see pictures, it's not ex- excessively inspiring or anything. And so Naaman kind of gets an attitude, pops an attitude. I've got rivers back home. Couldn't I just wash there? But praise God, he's got a servant that says, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. This is an easy thing. Go wash in the Jordan. Praise God that it's an easy thing you need to do to be healed. If it was a hard thing, actually, you probably would have done it. So why not do this easy thing? Don't pop an attitude. Back up. So Naaman's like, yeah, you're right. So Naaman goes and washes in the Jordan, and guess what happens? He comes out, and his skin is completely healed. Was it embarrassing? Absolutely. He had to wash seven times in the Jordan River. That's nastiness times seven. And yet... He did it. And this is where the blessings of the Lord go. It could go anywhere. It needs to go everywhere. But God sends his blessings to those with faith like this. It's not familiarity that brings blessings from God, but faith. God works the loudest and the clearest when we are faithful. And there are so many stories even in this room of people making faithful decisions. I want to talk about our two little freshmen that could from NSU. Talk about Asia and James. And I won't steal all of their treasure in heaven. But I I, I just think our, our two little freshmen that could are so inspiring to me. Asia, when she was studying the Bible, I mean, it's so much, so much opposite. I mean, like, it was clear that God wanted her. I mean, like, I think Leah was her teacher years back and, uh, I mean, studying the Bible was, was awesome, but then there was a lot of stuff going on from uh, it was your mom, right? Yeah. Mom standing in the way. And of course, there's a showdown when the people most dear in your life come and they say, you know what? No, don't do this. Don't give your life like this. Don't become a Jesus fanatic. Those people are weird. Asia took a look at the scriptures, Asia took a look at what Jesus called them to do, called her to do, and said, I love you, mom, but I love Jesus more. And got baptized. That's so inspiring to me. Yeah. And I think James Sosu is another one. Yeah. Ja- Our other little freshmen that could. When James, James actually uh, put in for a transfer to go to, to George Mason University and got in. And uh, you know, his dad, who's also been very opposed to him becoming a disciple, but then even on top of that, was like, you know what? Yeah, we need to move to George Mason. That's better for you for school. And, you know, James is kind of like, yeah, I, I kind of want to do that too. I feel a little bit more comfortable up there. But, but then after advice and discipling and some more discipling and a little more advice and some prayer and a lot more discipling and <laughs> more discipling. James stared down the same thing. And yet it made all the sense in the world to go to George Mason on paper. But saw clearly that spiritually, he needed to stay here. Facing wrath from his dad daily. James was like, no, I I need to stay because I need to work on my relationship with God first. And not my resume. Wow. And there are so many stories. I could go around and around. But these are people that have been disciples for less than six months. absolutely incredible. And God has already blessed all that. They actually both came down. We drove all together to uh, the, the MTA, CCA thing. It was awesome. God's going to use their stories. God's going to use their lives powerfully. But it takes acts of faith for God to pour in the blessings. I know for me, uh, I, I went to James Madison for, uh, I started off with music and my entire high school life, I couldn't actually imagine my life without music. I, every day after school, there was some musical thing to do, whether it was you know jazz bands or quintets or quartets or solo stuff for lessons or marching band, because that's really cool. Yeah. I know what I am. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine my life without music. And I'd go to James Madison, and the, the, the expectations to be in that music department were crazy. You had to practice at least two hours a day on top of Of all the rehearsals and all your classes, I was taking 19 credits, had to practice two hours a day in the marching band, and was trying to be a disciple. And my soul was splitting in two. Every time I was practicing, I felt guilty that I needed to be with the ministry. Every time I was with the ministry, I felt guilty because I needed to be practicing. Came down to this. You can't have two masters. I remember sitting at the JMU quad under this big old, I'm going to guess, oak tree? Tree. And just having a quiet time, just stealing between classes and, and reading Luke 16, you can't have two masters. You cannot serve two masters. You must hate the one and love the other. And I knew I had to make a decision. I remember staring down. I'm like, what is my life going to be like if, if I was to give up music? I mean, I, I, I don't even know who I am. I've always been a musician. Like, that was the plan from the beginning. But then on the flip side, who am I as not a disciple? I really don't know, and I don't even want to find out. That was hard. I remember I went to, like, counseling because it was so hard. I remember, because I'm a wimp, apparently, I remember crying about it one night. <laughs> I remember praying about it. And I, I just remember making that decision. I'm like, you know, i got to do this. I have got, I, something's got to give, and it's not going to be Jesus. So I remember marching in to my, to my advisor saying, I'm not going to be a musician anymore. I'm not going to be a music major. Him looking absolutely, like, discouraged because he had fought for me to get into the department. I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry that I'm hurting your feelings, but Jesus comes first. I didn't know who I was for a little bit. You know, it's crazy, though. Sometimes God has to remove big gifts to make room for bigger ones. And I'm joking, not joking, like less than three months later, God gave me a new dream to go and do ministry stuff. I went on a campus swap about three months later. Then three months after that, I went to a ministry internship in Lexington, Kentucky, of all places. So many horses and so much not city. But God replaced that, and God poured the blessings on me, and so now, here I am, five, six, seven, I don't know how many years later it is, I can't count, obviously not a math major, but so many years later, I look back on that, and God poured the blessings out, this is exactly the way I wanted my life to look, I just didn't know it looked like this, but it took going and saying, you know, I've got to be faithful, and there are so many stories, Uh, of of faithful actions like that, but I bet you there are just as many stories, if not more, of misconnections that we have with God because we're not faithful. Faith is staring down a choice between God telling us clearly what we need to do and then on the other side, what the world is offering us. And faith is us choosing God in that choice. Faith is not a religious routine where you show up and you know the words. It's the decision to do something that you have no reason to do except God is telling you. It is, you know, practically, it's fully and truly forgiving your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend when they act in stupid. And all you want to do is say no and just get mad. (laughs) Faith is saying, you know what? I'm going to forgive like Jesus forgave. I want to hold on to my anger, but I'm going to forgive. I'm holding on to Jesus more. Faith is writing that check to give to God even when you know you got nothing in the bank. Not nothing, you don't want your check to bounce, but you know what I mean. <laughs> That's not good either. Faith is drawing clear lines with that guy or girl at school who texts you, who pays you attention, that makes you feel like he just gets you. Faith is saying, yeah, he doesn't. John Sherman says he doesn't. I don't agree with that. Faith is saying, no, we're not dating. We're not going to date. Because my first love is God. You're not getting near me because you're not even close to God. It's Faith is calling out your brother or your sister who has become overly familiar with their spiritual walk. And they're not living out discipleship anymore. They're not having quiet times. They're not sharing their faith. Faith is calling that out, even though it would be massively awkward. This is what God calls us to live out, doing something that doesn't really benefit us in an earthly way, but it does please God. God is waiting to pour out the blessings on each one of us, but are we going to miss them? Here's the sad thing. Unfortunately, there are non-Christians in the Chesapeake, in the Tidewater area, There are non-Christians at your school. There are non-Christians that last night were partying. There are non-Christians that will receive more blessings from God this week than you. Because somewhere along the line, they're going to hear the word, and they're going to react to it the way they need to. But we will miss the blessings if we hear the word, and we don't respond faithfully. God's Blessings are reserved for those who are faithful, not those who are familiar. Sitting in these chairs don't guarantee you a thing. Acting faithfully gives God a chance to pour out the blessings. So let's not have that be that way with us. My challenge for this week, run to make a faithful decision. If it is the tattered family relationship, run to fix that faithfully. If it is your love affair with the world, run to cut it off faithfully. If it's your evangelism that's non-existent, with that evangelism, with that one person, that you've always said you should invite them to church. All right, run to evangelize faithfully. Imagine if Jesus' entire hometown had accepted him faithfully. Think about the army that he would have had at his disposal just to send out to all around Galilee. The story would have been very different if they had responded faithfully. Imagine if we responded with the same honor and faith as a widow and a leper. What kind of miracles would we see even this week? What incredible miracles do you want to see this week? Will you be faithful and see what God has in store for you? Or will you miss your connection with God's blessings because you've become too familiar? Church, let's not have that be the way with us. Let's be faithful and radical and never, ever become too familiar with our God. Amen.